Behold a planet overpopulated with dictators and despots, even in what might appear to be a robust democracy, elected officials are inclined to abuse their authority. And so we invoke the famous words of Lord Acton, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But according to my next guest, this isn't the whole story. Dr. Brian Class, that's K-L-A-A-S, is an Associate Professor in Global Politics at University College London and also finds time to write a column for the Washington Post. And uh, he's written a new book called Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes. He's conducted over 500 interviews with everyone from uh, cult leaders or convicted criminals to corrupt CEOs, putting himself in harm's way for us to find out why horrible people so often end up in power and what we might be able to do about it. Brian, welcome to our little wireless program. Thanks for having me. What's the genesis of the book? How did it happen? Well, I started studying uh, dictators and despots around the world, and I would find myself in a room with a really awful person. And I would come back and tell people about this back home, and they would say things to me like, oh, that sounds just like the person who's in charge of my homeowners association or my old boss. And I started to wonder, you know, is there a parallel between some of the awful people I interviewed in broken systems around the world and some of the people closer to home. So I started to study power more systematically, uh, who gets it, how it changes people, and how we can fix it so we get better people in charge, and that's why the book came to be. Brian, when I look at, say, the Trump dynasty, one wonders whether it's nature versus nurture. Is there, perchance, a genetic tray? This was a really difficult question to answer, and I, I, I tried to tackle it a few different ways. So first off, I looked what the research tells us, both in humans and in uh, animals, other non-human animals. So basically, in, in animals like hyenas, dominance is actually inherited. In mice, you can genetically alter the mouse and make them super dominant or super submissive. So it seems unusual if in the animal kingdom there is an inherited aspect of power and dominance that we would be so different. So some researchers started to look into this, and they indeed found a leadership gene, as they called it. But the problem is, even though this was correlated, and even though there was some clever research designs involving fraternal twins being compared against identical twins, we can't say with certainty whether people who had the leadership gene, that is, a gene that is correlated with leadership later on in life, were better at getting power or were actually more into power seeking. Those things are not the same. So it could be they were just more affable or charming rather than they had a thirst for power that was coded into their, into their genetics. So what I also did was started to look at people around uh, power who were their offspring. And one of the most striking bits of the book was when I uh, went to Paris and interviewed the daughter of a cannibalistic dictator, the former emperor of the Central African Empire, uh, a man named Jean Bedel Bocasa, and his, his daughter, Marie France, met with me. And, and it, was quite a, it was a fascinating experience because even though she acknowledges the monstrosities that her father committed, including feeding dissidents to crocodiles and allegedly serving human flesh on the menu at his palace, 
Uh, she still is proud of the Bokassa name and didn't rule out a return to politics for her back in the Central African Republic. And so the jury's still out a bit. I think it would be extremely unusual and unlikely to suggest that there's absolutely nothing to do with our genes in terms of who seeks power and who thirsts for it more than others. You know, Brian, I think I'd put uh, Bokassa into my repressed memory file. Suddenly he and the horrors around him come rushing back. Now, the, the sad thing or the ominous thing is that people with psychopathic tendencies not only seek power, but as you suggest, are pretty good at getting it. Yeah, there's this chemical trait known as the dark triad, which is effectively three different elements that when they're dialed up to the max are really, really destructive, both because the people who have them are good at getting power, they're obsessed with it, and because they're extremely destructive when they wield it. So the dark triad consists of Machiavellianism, the ends justifies the means, narcissism, extreme egotism, and psychopathy, being a psychopath. And all of us have little doses of these traits in us that might go up or down. You know, you might be a little bit more egotistical in certain parts of your life, a little more Machiavellian when you're trying to, you know, get a job promotion, whatever it is. The problem is that these people who have them dialed all the way up uh, are really, really ruthless power seekers. And unfortunately, and this is where, you know, in the book I focus a lot on the systems around power, we have designed systems that cater to these people, unfortunately. So if you think about what a job interview, a promotion interview, or an election have in common, they're performative. They're basically performances in which somebody has to make you like them in a short period of time. Now, this is the perfect stage for a psychopath who is known as having superficial charm or a narcissist who's highly, highly attuned to what other people think of them or a Machiavellian who will lie in order to get people to like them, uh, for them to perform and excel. And so one of the points I make is that even though psychopaths are a small proportion of the population, if you look at the research, they're disproportionately overrepresented in positions of power. And the point that a lot of the experts who study psychopaths make to me is that the dysfunctional psychopaths, the ones who can't actually control their tendencies, they end up in prison. They're the serial killers. The ones who can dial them down a little bit, just in the right moment to make people like them, they're in the boardrooms and in elected office. And so, you know, the studies suggest between four and a hundred times more psychopaths uh, exist in positions of power in modern society. Either way, it's a bad number and it's disproportionately harmful to our prospects as a species. My uh, terrifying guest is Brian Class. Of course, we are guilty of putting them into power, aren't we? You say this is because our brains are stuck in the Stone Age. That's right. So, you know, this is a, a situation where evolutionary anthropology has suggested that there is a lingering effect uh, from the way that we used to live tens of thousands of years ago. The idea is very simple. It's that our brains haven't had long enough in the last, say, 50,000 years to physically or chemically evolve. So we basically have the same brain in our skull. But our way of life has changed dramatically in the last 50,000 years. Now, 50,000 years ago, it probably was adaptive. In other words, it made people survive more. If during a moment of crisis, when they had some sort of uh, you know, threat of invasion from a rival tribe or band of humans, to turn to a physically large man. And the suggestion with evolutionary anthropology is that perhaps this template still exists in our brains. So they've, they've tested it with psychology tests. And when they prime people and say, you know, pick a leader, pick a face out of this array, but keep in mind that there's a war looming, that when you prime them with that crisis sort of uh, cue, you get a much more profound effect for size in men. 
And it doesn't actually uh, exist for women. It's interesting uh, speaking to an Australian broadcaster because uh, this nuance of it only existing as a template that seems to apply to male leaders about size was lost on Hajin Alban, the notorious uh, Australian politician who had her legs broken and stretched three inches uh, before her election bid. This, the evidence would suggest that she did not win uh, based on that elongation of her legs <laughs> in the initial election. But this idea of strong man leadership is referring to this idea of strong male templates um, actually having a disproportionate influence on leadership selection during times of crisis. And this is why Rutin Tootin Putin likes to ride horses without his shirt on. That's exactly right. And that's why, you know, this idea of strongman leadership, it's not an accident. It's something where I think some of these leaders have figured out that by trying to portray themselves as the as Donald Trump did, the I alone can fix it candidate. You know, the, 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 his inauguration speech was the American carnage speech. It primed this idea that there was an absolute crisis and only by having a strongman figure in charge could you deal with it. And so whether or not they've read the evolutionary anthropology research, I highly doubt, but they have hit on something that seems to be borne out in the, the elongated uh, history of our species. Enter stage left, Angela Merkel and Jacinda Ardern, which suggests that we should be uh, putting more women in power. Yeah, there's an, a really interesting thing that's happened over the last several hundred thousand years, which is that humans uniquely have severed the link between size and dominance. And the reason we can do this is because Interestingly, uh, we had a bit of cosmetic surgery done by evolution to our, sh our shoulders that allow us to throw with extreme accuracy. And this had a revolutionary effect on the way human species uh, developed because basically now you can kill people at a distance. And in the, in the distant past of our species, this meant that cleverness was much more important. So in other words, it was brains rather than brawn. That means that now we have a choice. We are, uh, we're, we're sort of uh, freed from the shackles of what much of the animal kingdom is bound to, which is size equals dominance. And that gives us the opportunity to be much more enlightened about picking our leaders based on more interesting, more uh, enlightened aspects, not about gender, not about aspects that are unimportant, but actually about performance and objective measures of who can actually deliver uh, and provide better lives for all of us. You say that women perform the same or better than men on just about every leadership metric. Yeah, this is an interesting one because all of the evidence does seem to suggest that, that women are less prone to despotism, abuse, corruption, etc. But there is a caveat, and the caveat is that I try to avoid being a gender essentialist, which is a person who says that women and men are good at some things and bad at other things. And the reason to be skeptical in this research, that there's something innate about this, is that perhaps we are comparing different groups. So because of sexism in society, the women who get to a position of power may be more exceptional than a man at the same level because it's harder to get there. So we can't say with certainty whether the data is showing that there's something innate about gender, although perhaps there is and some researchers suggest this, or whether it's a skew of the data as a result of a sexist uh, bias that is creating uh, an apples and oranges comparison. If Regardless of what we think, though, the data does go in one direction, right? There's no evidence to suggest women are worse or more abusive or more corrupt. That is quite clear. You interviewed uh, Ma Anand Sheila, the Rajneesh uh, strongman, and uh, rightly Biller is the worst bioterrorist in American history. 
She's a, a paradoxical figure. She was fascinating. You know, I put her in the chapter on, on power corrupting, because it is true, Lord Acton was correct, that power does corrupt. It's just, as you said in the intro, uh, only part of the story. Mahanan Sheila grew up as, a, as an art student in India who wanted to find, you know, spiritual enlightenment, became the sort of right-hand woman to a, a, a guru who spoke, you know, claimed to be sort of a demigod, and over time starts doing things like plotting to assassinate U.S. officials, poisoning or orchestrating the poisoning of four officials who, who visit the ranch where the cult is based, and then ultimately orchestrating the poisoning of nearly a thousand people in an attempt to rig a county-level election in the mid-1980s. Now, when I met her uh, a couple years ago, she's in charge of a care home in Switzerland for vulnerable people. And there's no hint of evidence that she's done anything nefarious since she served her time in prison in the United States and then was deported. But it's an amazing arc because you start with this sort of naive student who then ends up as the worst bioterrorist in American history and then loses power and seemingly goes back to normal. And it's a, it's a striking example of some of the psychological research that does suggest that power does actually act like a drug on people, and it can make them uh, think about things and contemplate courses of action that they wouldn't have when they were comparatively powerless. You mentioned in dispatches the woman who had her legs broken to get taller. It was Queensland councillor Hajnal Ban back in 2009. But power, you say, can physically change people anyway. Yeah, this is, this is a really interesting area of research. It's, there's a lot of research that's been done on how power changes your mind. I focused a chapter on how power changes your body. And what's fascinating about this is we can get evidence from both the primate world, the non-human primate world, and the human world. So I interviewed a man who studies macaques, uh, a species of monkey, in which they are basically housed individually to start with, so they don't have any hierarchy, and then they're put in groups of four. And within 10 minutes, they have a hierarchy of one, two, three, four. You can see who's the top monkey and who's the bottom monkey. And what they do then is they give them a choice between banana pellets or intravenous cocaine. They have a lever they're trying to use where they can pick one or the other. And what's fascinating is that the, the monkeys on the bottom of the hierarchy always take the cocaine, and the monkeys on the top of the hierarchy always take the banana pellets. And when they actually scan the brains afterwards, they find changes in the chemical structures of dopamine in the actual brain. If you redo the study and the, the powerful monkey in study one becomes a submissive monkey in, in study two, it changes again. And so when we look in the world of CEOs and presidents, there's similar effects that happen here in terms of stress. And we can actually look at biological aging uh, on a chemical level in both baboons and in humans. And we can also look at premature death. And one of the most striking studies that I came across was looking at presidential elections in 17 countries over 200 years. And the finding was that the winner of the presidential election died 4.4 years younger on average than the person who lost and therefore avoided the stresses of leadership. So the, the finding seems to be that it's good to be in the court, but it's not great to be the king. You suggest that the uh, 21st century Pantopticon should be turned inside out so that people in power feel as if they are being constantly watched. Yeah, I've lamented watching how surveillance systems in the modern corporate workplace 
are focused downward. In other words, there's new technologies in the pandemic and, and beyond that are quite dystopian. In the United States, some companies are using chair sensors to see who's actually physically in their chair uh, when they say they are working from home and so on. And what I've always observed is that these aren't the people who bring down companies, right? The person who embezzles a few paper clips or, or, or takes a 10-minute too long lunch break doesn't create the Enrons and those scandals that actually provide shockwaves for the economy. Those people are in the corner offices where there's no surveillance. And so I think if, we're, if we are going to have oversight, which is crucial, by the way, to avoiding corrupt behavior, we need to focus it on the truly powerful, the people who actually move uh, markets or have consequential say a consequential say in politics and instead what tends to happen is the people who are in the, the positions to actually affect disastrous decision making they're the ones that are least scrutinized quite often and so I think we need to invert that a bit more and make the people who are in charge worry a lot more about behaving badly. In the few seconds we have left, I'd like you to briefly explain the significance of the New Zealand police recruitment recruitment strategies. Yeah, I looked at how, you know, systems affect who you get in power. And in the United States, they recruit in an extremely militaristic way. They have promotion for veterans, and they also depict policing as though you're in an occupying army. I found one video where a small police department literally had a tank driving around as part of their police recruitment video. New Zealand developed a do-you-care-enough-to-be-a-cop recruitment scheme in which they made policing look fun, diverse, and totally about community support and not about violence. And it affected the demographics of who applied to be a police officer. It's a very simple but very powerful illustration that a rotten system attracts rotten people and a good system attracts good people. And even just portraying a system differently can affect the people who apply to be in that system. And that's why in some of these areas, we don't need to just think about what the police do. We need to actually think about who the police are and think more carefully about recruitment. Well, you're a class act, Brian, if you'll forgive the pun. We've been listening to Dr. Brian Class, Associate Professor in Global Politics at University College London and a columnist for the Washington Post. He raises and answers the question, does power corrupt or do the corrupt seek power? Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.